0: Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I've had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100-plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast, In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, on your favorite platform, and to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you.
1: You all did such a good job of yeah. of, making that, of making that the story with the, the kinds of talking points that um, you know, people can repeat. At, anyone can repeat them. Ad nauseum. So, ad nauseum and without thought. And I think folks who advocate for reproductive health rights and justice, we don't have that same power in the same way. It's so much more nuanced in the ways mm. that we talk about it. Um, So it was very, very powerful and able to rewrite the history, even though, you know, the organization that I run, there were, you know, white male clergy people all across the country getting people access to safe abortion care before Roe. And it's almost like that history has been erased. But moments like this and you being willing to talk about it, I hope that we are educating people Mm -hmm. on, on understanding that it was always a politically motivated issue.
0: Hi, my name is Frank Schaefer, and this is a podcast that I do called In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And today I am in conversation with Reverend Katie Zay, uh, and she is the chief executive officer of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice and the author of this book right here, which we're going to be talking about. Um a complicated choice making space for grief and healing in the pro choice movement um and I have read the book and have some marks in it to prove it so Katie <laughs> I actually prepared a little bit here let me um before we get into uh this book and talk about the contents of it, let me talk with you a little bit um I like to kind of unpack a little bit of who someone is um, on a on a personal level I think is much more interesting than just diving into the content um if you asked me about myself and we had just met um rather than telling you that I'm a writer of yada 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 books or doing this that and the other I would tell you that for the last uh 14 years I've been doing daily childcare for my three youngest of five grandchildren I cooked them a really good uh pasta con parmigiana today for lunch, because they're all away from school, ages 14 through eight. I have two older grandchildren who grew up in Europe and three grown children. Um I've been married to Jeannie for 53 years, got her pregnant when we were 17 and 18. Um I paint, I write, that's who I am. The, the least interesting part of my life is what I would call the sort of, oh, what do you do Uh, answer to the question, which is always about career and status and position, blah, 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 blah. And as I get older, I am 70 years old now, that's what I'm least interested in talking to anybody about, Hmm. because it doesn't interest me at all. Um, So where I'd like to start with you is not the kind of copy you read on the back of a book, like this very interesting book that we're going to be talking about, Um, but instead what you actually care about, which is not this book, um, because life's too big for that, which is not, uh, the fact that you're a reverend or whatever, there has to be things in your life, um, where beauty touches you, where meaning touches you, where what you really would give your life for impacts you on a daily basis. And it's very rarely in my experience, the bio stuff, or the career stuff, it always has to do with where a person really lives, which for me would be, you know, right now in order of preference, um, taking Nora to the MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts, yesterday, because she had a day off from school, um, learning about an artist that I knew nothing about, um, reliving the routine of of wandering around the museum with her and rejoicing in the fact that my little eight-year-old granddaughter, the youngest in our family, is at home in the MFA can take off and say, I'll rejoin you in the atrium later, go look at what she wants to look at, take me around. And it's like, okay, I've won one battle here. I've got a little girl who loves this museum and it's part of her life and she will remember this. Okay, that's what I care about. Okay. I've gone on way too long. You can go as long as you want. Who are you?
1: Well, so what's interesting about this to me is that as a woman, I am always asked to define myself in who I am in relationship with. And so often the professional or the vocational is, is not at the forefront. So I'm actually having this weird response where I'm like, everybody always wants to know who I am to others versus who I am in myself. So maybe just mm-hmm. saying that says a lot about who I am, that I, I define me and that's taken me a long time mm-hmm. probably until the last few years, I'm almost 40 to say, actually, I am my own human being and my own right, not in relationship to those uh, around me or who I, who I care for. Those relationships yeah. are very important, but they are not; they they do not define me. So, I hope that you don't mind a little bit of resistance. Not at all. Good answer.
0: So go there.
1: <laughs> so you know what what undergirds the book and my life's work up until this point is really a calling that I'm here to be a healer, um, and that has a spiritual healer in many ways. And it's taken lots of different forms, but what drew me to, you know, caring for people going through reproductive crises or crises of any kind, it's just, that's mm. where I've landed is really because that's what I feel like I'm here to do. I'm, I'm here to be a healer. And that happens in one-on-one relationship, the people I live with and am in community with, but also on a, on a bigger scale. And so I think that that's absolutely what defines me. And a lot of that is about self-healing you know, doing my own work, I think you and I maybe share some, some background. I grew up in a very, very conservative white evangelical um, church community. Mm. So unlearning that and all the scripts that I was taught about who I was supposed to be and actually discovering who I actually am and who I'm becoming, Mm. um, that self-discovery I'm very passionate about. And I find the more that I do that and talk about it, the more other people, in my life do the same thing because I think mm-hmm. healing begets healing. Um, other things that I'm passionate about. Um, I love helping people move their bodies. I'm a group fitness instructor. And, yes. I
0: gathered that very interesting, by the way, we'll get yeah. into that a little bit.
1: Yeah. I love um, I just, that's a space that's so complicated for so many people. I think our relationships to our bodies for everybody, I think female bodied people in particular, is a very complicated relationship. And so being able to be in that space and even without saying the words, but just Mm. embodying kind of a joy of what our bodies can do. Um, I love, I love doing that with others and leading people through that. So that's a fun, a fun part of my life. Um, I am, I do have a partner and we have a child and they are my biggest cheerleaders and supporters. Um, they ground me you know, some days I think I would like to go live in a cave by myself. Um, but they really are the ones who, you know, who hold me, Mm. um, in, in community. And I'm really, really grateful for the human beings I get to share my life with. Um, I'm very spiritually curious. Um, I'm kind of open to exploring almost anything. I started studying astrology, I love to read tarot cards. Um, I have found the divine in all the spaces I was told the divine does not live
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in my spiritual exploration, and so I'm always like spiritually curious and, and wanting to have conversations or learn about things that you know were kind of um, discouraged for so long because I've actually found so much sacredness in those things. So, yeah, let's unpack some uh, of that
0: uh, background a little bit. Let's dive back, 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 because you were talking about having come from a kind of a, what you um, um, put forward as kind of a similar background to mine, maybe an evangelical uh, background, fundamentalist, Bible believing, however you want to describe that. Um, Mm -hmm. So just tell me a little bit of thumbnail of that story, uh, not uh, where you are today, but but Mm -hmm. where you were then and then maybe a little bit of the bridge to where you are now, that kind of progression.
1: Sure. I did not grow up in a religious household, but I Mm -hmm. grew up in Southeast Georgia in a small town where you can pick up the evangelical Christianity, even if you're not within the, the church itself. The first time I went to church was with my maternal grandmother when she was terminally ill. And to be honest, I really loved it because I had never been exposed to any of the stories really until then. And because They were, it was more invitational where I could just listen. I was really curious about who this Jesus guy was. So I was probably very drawn to him as a healer, you know, given Mm -hmm. what I've said. So I actually found it quite fascinating. And after she died, that was when I moved more into the, the evangelical culture. It was, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s um, where purity culture was becoming a really big thing and youth group and that sort of thing. And and I think it, it started as connection to my grandmother because she wasn't, she wasn't around, Mm. but it quickly became a place of community and belonging for me. And so I just kind of went along with the rules. I'm very rule abiding. (laughs) So having rules was really helpful for me Mm. and it gave me a sense of belonging and community for sure. And those things I, I still treasure and value. Um, And when I got to college and I started to explore theologically what the historical church was like, especially the first 400 years, I thought all of this has been withheld from me. There's a whole rich story of how we got these doctrines and there was not agreement and there's a lot of interesting history here. So I started to explore that academically, which made the faith community very um, small and uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. And that really was the starting point for me was when I got, when I was exposed to the actual history of how Christianity came about um, and got to critique it and learn that there were lots of different ways to to be a person of faith, to be Mm -hmm. a Christ follower that didn't look like the very restrictive rules that I had heard that honestly never really jived with me. If I'm perfectly honest, I went along with them because there wasn't an option not to, but yeah. I don't, I think I always felt an inner, there was always an inner tension for me, especially around the social teachings um, around queer people and women. I, I ne- it never sat right with me. It never felt right. So I think yeah. once I've found a way out, I, I could start to make sense of that inner tension that I had always felt, which honestly I think was the divine kind of nudging me from within early on.
0: You know, a little while ago, I'm just reaching over here, to my unofficial stack of books. I interviewed um, uh, someone who wrote a book, uh, Beth Allison Barr, The Making of Biblical Womanhood.
1: Oh, uh-huh.
0: Yeah. And I had a, a, and and I, I enjoyed the interview a lot. And I, I'd read the book thoroughly and dog-eared all of it. And, Uh, talk to Beth but of course you know my basic quibble with her book um, and this is related to what you're talking about in terms of your journey is she uh, is an academic who comes I guess still from an evangelical position and is trying to make the case for uh, the making of biblical womanhood based on the fact that from her point of view the scriptures as she would understand them are valid and have been misinterpreted to somehow come up with a misogynistic message. And of course, I have a very different view these days from the one I grew up on. And that is that the biblical narrative is not misinterpreted. It was wrong. And I I don't see it her way. I don't find myself trying to build bridges and say, well, you know, it's valid. If you really understood what the what Paul was saying... You, you balanced by whatever, whatever, um, or, or the way it was understood in, in, uh, some branch of the church in this or that century. Um, we can see there's another way to read this. I think there's a lot to me, and this is not a loaded question I'm asking. I'm just I literally just asking you something. Do you look as an ordained person at the scriptures as a source that can be interpreted in some way that is helpful to people, or do you look at at this original source as just flat out wrong in many places in which it speaks, not misinterpreted but actually mistaken, uh, whether that's on the basis of science or history or morality, whatever? And and that is not a loaded question. It's when I, yeah, no, I asked her, and we got into an interesting discussion after okay. that. I differed yeah. with her view, and I don't know what your view is. I literally yeah. don't. That's not what your book is about that I've just read. But I think it's a <laughs> question.
1: Absolutely. And I wrote a book prior to that called Women Rise Up, looking at some of the sacred stories yeah. through the lens of, of gender oppression that very much mirrors what we are dealing with today. They're the yeah. same exact issues of gender oppression, you know, in the ancient text, we call them a lot of, we call them different things now, mm-hmm. but they're the same. And so in that way, I think that they are wrong and they can be instructive also. I mean, yeah. the fact that they're wrong, what was going on was, was oppressive and misogynistic doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. And I think mm-hmm. being really honest about, you know, what was going on at the time, but also that these are oppressive systems that are going on and they still exist now sure. in, in the same way can be very, very helpful for people. And I'm not so far that way that I'm willing to kind of let go of the text altogether, because especially in the work that I do, I feel like that's almost just allowing the opposition to, you know, use these, what I think some are very beautiful, sacred texts. And I do believe in the doctrine of revelation in the sense that new things can be revealed to us from ancient sources. I think that there is, there are many stories where I see, wow, people were resisting oppressive structures in these very creative ways. And I think that we can learn from that and ask, you know, in these times, what does it look like for us to resist systems mm-hmm. of oppression? And can we find inspiration and models from that? Um, So I'm not willing to let it go altogether, but I definitely bring a critical eye to it. So it's, it's trying to do both of those things. And I think liberation theologians do that. I think Feminist theologians do that. Black liberation theologians do that. They're not willing to throw away the text. They, they claim the problems that are there and also say, and it's not only that. Mm-hmm. It's also this. But so I that's where I land.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always wonder if the unwillingness to throw away the text is because the text is where the money is in the sense that, <laughs> uh, you know, when I walked away from the evangelical world, there was more money on our book tables on any given night than I earn in a year.
1: Yes. Oh, I and, understand uh, that.
0: I have evangelical friends who are on the progressive side of evangelicalism. And and they. T- one thing that I always find um, disturbing is to have people you're close to and have known for maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years, as I have with names you would know instantly if I mentioned them, who are the leading progressive evangelical slash Christians in the country today. And... Um, basically but they still have book deals with people uh they still get invited to wheaton college and these other places Correct. i don't because uh-huh. i have literally burned the bridges i am mm-hmm. not jealous of them because mm-hmm. I, I i will take the reviews my book get in the quote secular press any day over pandering to that audience but uh-huh. i totally understand it because there's been times in my life when i have gone flat ass broke uh because i have really burned the bridges so, I understand where they're coming from, but I also think that when they make the argument based on, well, we don't want to let go of the text because um, of the value of however it is, rather than right. coming clear clearly out and denouncing things, um, I have a real problem with that. And, and let me, before I ask you to answer that and to comment on it, again, I'm not fishing for... debate here but that's just my point of view the other thing i have a problem with is in the progressive christian movement you know what i'll call the pandering to global fundamentalism um Mm. you know we we will talk about evangelicalism we will talk about the the anti-abortion movement all very well and good but um i don't hear people talking about modi of india and hindu nationalism where where muslims are being massacred with the approval of the state I don't hear about enough about what's going on in Tehran right now with women rising up. Right. You know, I hear a lot more about a a Muslim student in a small liberal arts college who was offended because some teacher showed a picture of the prophet. Personally, I don't give a shit because Mm -hmm. right now what I care about is tens of thousands of young women being beaten in the streets of Tehran. Right. Uh, What I care about is the fact that, 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 Evangelical religion's problem is not evangelical religion's problems. It is fundamentalist's problem, okay. whether it's stealing land from the Palestinians, whether it is uh, in Tehran right now, beating young women and raping them in police stations, um, Saudi Arabia, 80 executions in one morning of people deemed terrorists who did nothing more than protest the state. I think we've got a global phenomenon going on of a, of a turn to the radical fundamentalist Right. Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin's doing it right now, arguing against gay and trans people and saying that's why he's fighting in Ukraine.
1: Exactly. That's two big
0: things. And I know they're loaded. Mm. Take it away.
1: No, I I completely agree with you. It's the it's the weaponization of an ideology for oppression that Mm. I hear you talking about. And, you know, specifically within the U.S. context, because that's where I primarily work. You know, we talk about as white Christian nationalism. We're not talking about of religion. We are talking about a co-optation and using weaponizing a a text, a religion, a practice for political gain, for power over others. And that to me, that is what makes me so angry as someone who still does find value in the Christian tradition broadly, not without its problems, but it is the fact that it is being used by the state as a weapon against people who are already marginalized and oppressed for power over to control where people moved around the, the, the planet, um, mm. what healthcare they can access, you know, what history they can learn. That is for me, the antithesis of what any spirituality ought to be about, which is about honoring the fact that we are all divine beings yeah. that have autonomy and worth and ought to be able to flourish in our lives. Anything that's antithetical to that, to me, is a weaponization and a bastardization of what spirituality ought to be. And I think so often, from the time of Constantine, that has been true with right. Christianity. And that's what I mean right. about learning about the t- the history. Most people don't learn about how Christianity became the official state of the of the Roman Empire and what how that changed the whole thing
0: mm-hmm. once
1: it became a weapon of the state. Well, I agree with you.
0: Yeah. Mary Beard makes that point in all her Roman history studies that essentially the Roman Empire never went away. It simply became Christianized, but that it is Ah, still it is still the West today. Um, And, um, you know, I've interviewed other people recently who have been writing writing on this subject, Um, but. Okay, we're kind of coming up to the halfway mark and we haven't talked about about the book. (laughs) I'm going to reintroduce you here. Uh, This is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. You are watching it live on Facebook and or you are listening to it as a podcast. If you like this conversation and many others that we have had, please like it in the online interweb sense um, and subscribe and do all those good things. And today I'm talking with um, the author of A Complicated Choice, katie zay and here it is this is the book you've got it behind you but i'm showing it even better than
1: you (laughs) You do you have you have a great angle with it right there (laughs) there you are
0: and um i want you know when i read a book sometimes i pick a little passage out uh that i think actually kind of should have been on the cover okay if you had had if the publisher you know was on the ball this is what they would have put on the cover because it sort of says says the book um I'm going to read this quote. This is pretty early in the book, and I have things later that I want to get to. But when we keep quiet about abortion and when our support is lukewarm and detached, we signal to people that we would rather not hear about their experiences. There is a culture of silence around abortion, and that silence is shaming and isolating on both a personal and collective level. We have to face our internalized abortion stigma. Otherwise, we keep ourselves at arm's length from the lived reality of abortion and from the people who need our support and compassion the most. That's what should have been on the cover, because that sums your book up. That's why you wrote the book. And right. if you want to jump back uh, further here in in the back part of the book, when you have these subsections on response you say, learn to respond with compassion to situations that bump up against your experience, beliefs, and values. And to me, that was the most, um, enlightening is the wrong word, but the one that really kind of nailed it in bringing me, the reader, to bump up against things that aren't my experience, but to take the other person's experience seriously and listen to it and Mm -hmm. hear it. Have Mm -hmm. I missed the point or is that what your book's about?
1: No, I think you've I think you've summarized it beautifully. It Good. is about challenging abortion stigma, and how do we do that? It's by yeah. creating space for different stories. Um, yeah
0: yeah, and, and those stories, by the way, for readers uh, who haven't gotten here yet, and I hope they do read your book, are in the book, which is a mixture of those sorts of declarative statements and summary and a little bit of history, but also um, goes into I didn't count them all, but what are there maybe 14 I
1: think it's uh I think it's seventeen.
0: 17 stories. Math has never been my strong suit. There's some individual stories. (laughs) I
1: should know. I don't remember.
0: (laughs) Including someone you added late in the process who I actually happen to know who that was. Ah. So let's get into the book. But before we do, I'm going to look at a passage here that um, was from something that I think is very relevant to your book, uh, another book on the issue. Um, This is from. uh, Elise Hogue, who, was, um, who wrote this book called The Lie That Binds, and Elise ran Narrow for many years, the National mm-hmm. Abortion Rights League, and is a friend of mine. And this is a book she wrote. Um, and I'm going to read you a quote, because it sort of ties you to me through this subject in the sense that I was part of the early stages of the evangelical pro-life movement with my father, Francis Schaeffer, and Dr. Sievert Coop. Koop. And of course, what's odd is she was, of course, knew all about that, and then we've subsequently become friends. But she writes, um, the issue of reproductive freedom may be best understood as a canary in a coal mine, though not the only one. Systematic attacks on reproductive freedom are one of the classic hallmarks of democratic backsliding. Advocates for reproductive freedom, health, rights, and justice have spent the last several decades combating the elements of creeping authoritarianism from disinformation and propaganda to the ongoing efforts to undermine trust in science and medicine to a relentless barrage of attacks on institutions designed to protect individual liberty and free or fair elections. So Elise writes that in this book. And as someone who, Maya Kolka, was very much part in the 70s and 80s, when I was a very young man, um, of a kind of a family enterprise of right-wing activism in this country through the films Whatever Happened to the Human Race with Dr. Koop, really somewhat responsible as the producer director of those films for making what she warns about become a thing. Mm. Um, and I just want to interject one thing that I'm sure you know, but for people listening to this or watching it, can't be said enough because it's a hidden fact It's almost kept a secret in evangelical circles. When we first came out with whatever happened to the human race, our fight was not with feminists who were pro-choice. Our battle was with the evangelical majority who were also pro-choice at that time, including the Reverend Billy Graham who I met with three times with my father in person and begged to join our cause, who point blank refused because he was pro-choice. So was Dr. Criswell, the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention.
1: That one I knew.
0: Who I met with. And um, we also met with and browbeat the editorial board of Christianity Today magazine into eventually taking our position, who at first would not, because this was regarded as a Catholic issue, like contraceptives, were at that time and nothing that was on their radar screen. And the reason I mention this is because um, the, the, you know, at least talks about the lie that binds part of that lie was assuming that somehow evangelical Christians and or Christians in general had always been against abortion. Right. They had not.
1: Right. Right. And right.
0: part of, and I know what we had to do is talk them into even thinking that this was their issue, let alone a litmus test, based on which you're going to vote for Donald Trump 40 years later, because he's made a deal with Franklin Graham and other right-wing activists to put our kind of judges in positions of leadership. So that's a long preamble to your book. And I want to really get into the book. But the first thing I want you to do is talk a little bit about that historical context and the kind of fight within Christendom, aside from the big battle on the culture war, left-right kind of divide. How do you see all that today? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has To Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going, if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support, and most of all, for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much.
1: Well, I mean, it's hard to follow you giving an inside scoop on kind of the the genesis of how that came to be, because these are things that I've only heard from from other historians. But, you know, just to reiterate what you said, there's never been, you know, one one viewpoint really on anything within Christianity, but especially about abortion. It wasn't it's not ever something mentioned in the sacred texts. Catholics themselves argued about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Abortion was legal in the United States with lots of support, you know, before it became illegal and then legal and now, you know, practically illegal in most places. Mm -hmm. So I I think that, you know, you all did an amazing job of rewriting the story so that people today, and I hope that this is changing, Mm -hmm. have this narrative that to be a person of faith and they mean Christian, but they say faith means that you're anti-abortion. I mean, it has You all did such a good job of of making that, of making that the story with the the kinds of talking points that, um, you know, people can repeat at, anyone can repeat them. Ad nauseum. Ad nauseum and without thought. And I think, you know, folks who advocate for reproductive health rights and justice, we don't have that same power in the same way. It's so much more nuanced in the ways Mm -hmm. that we talk about it. Um, so it was very, very powerful and able to rewrite the history, even though, you know, the organization that I run, there were, you know, white male clergy per- people all across the country, getting people access to safe abortion care before Roe. Sure. And it's almost like that history has been erased, but moments like this and you being willing to talk about it, I hope that we are educating people yeah. on an understanding that it was always a politically motivated issue this is yeah, never I I
0: on that because i want your impression again this yeah. is not a little question this is a real question something that has disturbed me in terms of the left and the pro-choice movement is that they actually find the same narrative that paints all christians as having always been the enemy on this and when i say christians mm-hmm. i mean the evangelical i'm using it in the term yeah the way i was raised sure. on it we were christians yeah. catholics weren't you know we were the real right deal. um right being a little facetious but what i'm trying to say is this kind of black and white division actually suits both sides in our culture wars. These are the bad guys, we're the good guys, we're flipping. What neither wants to know, and this is why I love the title of your book, a complicated choice. This is where people don't wanna go because Mm -hmm. no one wants this complicated. Everybody wants to be 100% unambivalent and correct across the board. Um, And I'm not talking about whether you have to re-legislate and re-argue this, I'm talking about just in in the dishonesty that both the left and the right have brought to the debate in not understanding that uh, this litmus test fails on every level, because there are all kinds of women who are conservative in many, many ways who were pro-choice. There are all kinds of people who were evangelicals who were pro-choice. Hello, Dr. Billy Graham in the 1950s and 60s is pro-choice. I mean, go figure, this doesn't fit the narrative of the New York Times either.
1: That's Uh, correct. So talk a little bit about
0: that. I mean, you're out there on the hustings with this message, ministering to people. What are you finding out there in terms of the ambivalence of the complicated choice part of the complication, just in that political sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that people are longing for, especially now, a nuanced conversation where they get to talk about their own experience or their own family's history or the things that they were taught to believe about abortion that that still have shaped them. And that's why I talk about abortion stigma, because I think it's impossible to be in this culture and not hear the anti-abortion message all the time. We internalize it just like, Racism, sexism, heterosexism, all of those things. Yeah. It's just part of living in the culture that we do. And so giving people an opportunity to really sit with that, how does it make them feel? Where did it come from? Maybe they don't actually believe it, but they're not sure what to replace it with. People haven't had that space because they have felt like they have to choose you know, right. one, one or two sides. And I think on most issues that are human issues that are complicated, people have nuanced feelings about them. Mm -hmm. And and I think that we have to create more space for the reality of people's lives. And my point is that, you know, the, the stories that I tell are not only about the individual people they are about pointing to the systems that Mm. put people in situations where they cannot flourish period no matter what decision they make about a pregnancy they're not going to flourish because there are not the systems in place for them to do so and that's what i hope to point to also it's internal introspection for sure but Mm. also not only for that, how do we then respond and listen to the people who've been doing this work for a long time saying, hey, if we actually want human flourishing, this is what it's going to take collectively for mm-hmm. us to do that. And mm-hmm. so I hope that the reader does the internal work first, but then says, and so now what? What do we do about this? How do we change the system? How do we identify white Christian nationalism in the way that it functions here and mm-hmm. replace it or challenge it with something else? Um and it's a broader movement than just reproductive health rights and justice. I mean, these are these are things that impact, white Christian nationalism impacts all of us mm. in lots of different ways. Um, and I yeah. think we've done a disservice, especially, you know, white women in leadership, um, especially around the decision in the 80s, like really making this a, a white woman's issue. And a lot of ways they talked about it rather than seeing it as this is about a much broader, Um, agenda that we need to be pushing for, Mm -hmm. for everybody, especially people who are most marginalized, Black women and others, so they can flourish fully, not just about access to abortion, but about, you know, really being able to take care of your body and flourish Mm -hmm. with your family, you know, so that's what I hope people get when they read the book.
0: Yeah, and I think they will. Um, Again, uh, this is Frank Schaefer, this is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, a podcast and uh so forth and so on. We're talking about a complicated choice uh by Katie Zay. And um one thing I wanted to do is just go in into something in the book here a little bit. Um let me get my little markers here. Um just to cut to a hard not a hard part of the book, but one that um will will wake a few people up when they hear me read this and then just let you talk about it a little bit because I thought I liked your honesty here, uh page 105. Abortion is a blessing and you have that as a standalone uh where is it right there? Not that mm-hmm. they usually, you know, your editor will say, hey, you have you can't have single sentence paragraphs, but you did it. Um <laughs> In that sentence, if that sentence made you uncomfortable, I understand. Abortion stigma impacts all of us, myself included. Let me explain what I mean when I say that abortion is a blessing. I'm not claiming that abortion is easy or without lost grief or other complicated emotions. To the contrary, I am affirming that the very process of identifying and coming to terms with one's full experience of abortion can lead to tremendous growth and positive change in a person's life. Abortion has the power not only to save lives, but to bless them too. So that's basically, um, you know, as far down that path as anyone could put in in print. And I want you to take off and give you the opportunity to talk about that part of the book a little bit. People will find it when they read it, but uh, it's a good paragraph. It's a good sentence. And I'd like you to hear to unfold it. I'd like to hear you unfold it a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would have claimed that as strongly as I did in the book, had it not been for writing the book and talking to all the people for the Mm -hmm. book, because Mm -hmm. that came from the conversations that I had with people who had experienced abortions in their own life. Sure, And they would say abortion was a blessing because abortion freed me from a toxic relationship. You know, abortion saved my life, my physical life. Sure. Uh, Abortion allowed for me to, you know, change my career and do the thing that I always wanted to do. It was like this catalyzing moment for people. And that's what I mean about it being a blessing. I think, in the same way that um, breakups can be a blessing or divorce can be a blessing, it's not without pain. And they can sometimes be that moment of of really shifting things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true of any major life decision where you have the freedom to say, I'm going to do the thing that feels right for me, even though maybe it's scary or hard, and I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes the thing in retrospect that made everything else possible. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely true of abortion. I wouldn't say it's true for every single person. People have to claim their own experiences but it was so evident from talking to people that that was such a critical moment in their lives that I have to claim it as such. Um, And access to abortion is a blessing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I pulled that out to talk about because I would imagine that as you were going through this and in a later draft, the, it, you know, you had to give some thought to that in terms of how could that be misquoted or misrepresented, but your book does back that up, because that's what the stories do. So I knew, I, I kind of knew where that had come from, but I thought that you would want to go there, because um, why not dive into the the toughest saying, as it were, and say, okay, unfold that a little bit. You know, let me talk a little about my about my own journey on this issue, not because what I think about it matters, but I think that part of the lies that we're talking about where it's convenient to the left and right as part of a paying job culture war stick <laughs> um, is again this idea that no one can change their mind
1: uh-huh.
0: and I, I did not only did I change my mind I had been uh, considerably uh, uh, you know involved with and part of even though I was a young man and you can argue okay didn't know any better raised in that and so forth and so on but you know, the 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 misogyny that I participated in was a shameful thing. And I've spent a lot of time writing about that and apologizing for it. But at the same time, having come from that background, uh, it was a long process for me to, you know, I, I put it this way. I moved away from my evangelical Christianity much faster than I was able to move away to the from the heated political involvement I'd had in the pro-life movement.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Um, in other words, it, 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 for me, it flipped uh, because I was so into that. So I think in my head, I you know, I was writing my novel Portofino, which was kind of my goodbye letter to the evangelical world I was raised in, a kind of a first step in that direction several years before I did my last fundraising event for a crisis pregnancy center. I was out of the evangelical thing, but the politics, mm. the hard right driving, we're right, about that issue had so gotten into what I was doing that it took me a long time to unfold that. Well, 35 years, 40 years later, which we are today, sitting here having told you about my grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera, from my perspective today, I have a very different uh position on on these issues than I had, not only then, obviously, but even in the intermediate years where I was saying, well, it's a very tough thing. And I'm ambivalent about it. But I think women ought to have choice. Uh, You know, I'm kind of against abortion personally, but I think Mm -hmm. it ought to be legal, that kind of halfway mark. You know, today I have a very definite sense of clarity on this, and it—and I would put it differently than this, and I want your reaction to that, and not to me, but just to this position. And a woman who teaches at, uh, in a university who's written on this issue um, was very helpful to me, uh, Dr. Myrna Perez, and she um, was down at Harvard doing all sorts of interesting things and helped me a lot in her writing. Um, But the way I see it today is very differently. It is not that every abortion is a blessing. For all I know, some of them are horrendous and destroy a woman's life, just like every other decision is not all a blessing.
1: Um,
0: I don't think you were saying every abortion is a blessing. Mm -mm. But I have a very different view of the legality and the legislation on abortion. And even on the moral question, if you want to go to the heart of it, the right or wrongness of it. And that is that, by its very nature, uh, every abortion involves a decision. And to me, there's only one question, who should make the decision? Mm -hmm. Is it a judge? Is it a legislator? Is it a family member? Or is it the woman who is pregnant? I don't know whether her decision's right or wrong for her. It's not for me to say,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but I know one thing for sure, She's the only person in the room qualified to talk about this. So Frank Schaefer and everybody else, shut the fuck up, back off, and allow her to make her decision, period. Mm -hmm. And I used to have all sorts of other packaging that went with that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Trexity, ambivalence.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm done with that. There is Mm -hmm. only one position on abortion that makes sense to me, and it's this. Someone has to make the decision who's it going to be? It's not the decision won't be made. There are always going to be abortions. It's not that every decision is wonderful or terrible. It's not unpack the morality of abortion as if this sort of abstract question has to apply to this individual stuck in a situation. It's not even to say, because it's a woman and I'm pro-choice, which I am, I'm going to try to make her decision agreeable to everybody. Maybe it's maybe Maybe she's wrong sometimes. But Mm -hmm. to me, it really boils down to just two things. One, someone has to make the decision. A, that's a fact. B, who is it? Mm -hmm. And I've never heard yet any argument that makes me think it ought to be someone other than the pregnant woman. Period. End of story. That's it. I'm not going to write a book on it because it would be two sentences long. (laughs) Who's going to make the decision? It should be a woman. It's nothing to do with me. Shut the fuck up. That's my position.
1: Yeah. Well, and it points to, you know, what undergirds so much of it is that pregnant people are not regarded as moral decision makers or as decision makers, period. And I think that even within the law itself, there's a lot of questioning of the moral decision making or just decision making of the pregnant person. Um, and that that's broader than abortion. That's about people who can reproduce, period. Because you'll hear stories of of folks, you know, while they're giving birth, the yeah. hospital will intervene and do things without the consent of the person giving birth. Sure. I mean, this is m- a much broader issue. Yeah. So for me, I'm I'm comfortable with that frame. And then it, it but then the question is. And can we make sure that everybody makes decisions within a context where they actually have everything that they need in terms of support to do that? Sure. And every pregnancy ought to be something that people consent to continue, yeah. you know, um, and and that people ought to actually have choice. And I think the the, the frame of pro-choice has been critiqued yeah. very rightly that look at what's happening right now. Do people actually have choices that they can make that they feel choices, period, and choices that they feel good about? you know, that's the reality is that for many people, those, those choices have never existed. And they certainly have been impeded upon because of the overturn of Roe. So there are people who have compulsory pregnancies now where they're forced to continue them um, without access to whatever they would need to then, you know, continue that pregnancy. Well, Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm comfortable with where you stand and then, you know, the question goes, and so what do we do about that? Yeah. Um, so that people are not alone, right? People ought to be able to consult whoever they so choose to make a decision. Sure. sure. And some of the things that come up in the book so much is that people felt so isolated. They felt like they could not, yes, could not engage the people who should support them in this one area. This is a secret for some of them and that creates its own suffering. It really, really does.
0: Yeah. And it seems to me, you just touched on this point, um, And just to go into it a little further, that uh, the problem we have in today's culture, uh, that it relates to the abortion decision of the individual woman, is that the culture itself, and I have to finish this sentence before it's misinterpreted, not by you, but by people who are listening, is anti-life. Where's the paid parental leave?
1: Right. Right.
0: Why don't we have that, um, not just two weeks or three weeks, but a year and a half, two years Mm -hmm. for any parent Mm -hmm. of any gender? Where is the paid parental leave? Where is the backup for, for young children in terms of free medical care? Where have we got a system in place that gives people a priority when it comes to those who do choose to nurture life and the the sort of not even compassion, but basic common decency that says, "I'm in your corner." Um, you know, the decency that individuals outside of a political context, even sometimes ones who voted for Trump, have, if they see, you know, a young parent of whatever gender trying to carry three bags of groceries and push a stroller across the street, and they step up and help, because we are biological animals. You know, which is, by the way, one reason we get on with our dogs so well, uh, mm-hmm. because we co-evolve and love is a thing. And none of us would be here without community and support. Our, the United States of America has designed a culture, and you can give it names, you know, capitalism, whatever, but that's not my point here, which essentially, if you were trying to write a fictional story about a country that was anti-life that says, we don't want anybody to have a happy family or babies or reproduce, or even have a relationship or start one. We're gonna put career ahead of all else. We're gonna put position and prestige ahead of all else. If you happen to fall pregnant, you are alone. And if you're a parent and are trying to even have a relationship today, we're gonna give you a choice, online dating or loneliness. We're going to have a mental health crisis sweeping through our young people because we have completely screwed them over with tech and with no kind of in-between stage where we did a few experiments to see if this was good for anybody. When you look at the total picture of people unable to connect, dating falling to pieces in so many ways, relationships on the rocks, and I'm not talking about divorce statistics per se and so forth, no parental leave, no basic support for young families, then on top of that, we're going to take Roe away. So we're going to make you have a baby if you fall pregnant. I can't think of a bleaker picture. And I know that I've gone a little bit to the edge on this, but I really feel that way. And I feel tremendously sad for younger people. I've been so fortunate in that Jeannie and I have had a, a, a real relationship, many ups and downs, horrible times, but we're very close together. We're not alone. And I have these grandchildren running around. I don't want that for everybody. That's not the right choice for everybody, but I want everybody to have a bite at that apple if they so choose. Mm -hmm. And I can't even figure out how they could buy a house now, how they could even find a place to live. So it's a little bit of a rant on my part, but I got to tell you um, that burns very bright for me. And I, I I, I just think the hypocrisy is so massive with yeah. people who say they're against abortion and then won't lift a finger to help that parent across the street carrying three bags of groceries and pushing a stroller. Where the where yeah. the hell
1: have you been? It's the um it's the lack of compassion. Yeah, um, I hate it. And um, it makes me think about this illusion that we are separate from each other. It's right. so central to that because if if you, I mean, just as a community, we learned, I think during the pandemic that we are all connected. We yes. cannot disconnect. Yeah. And if you are a spiritual person at all, that's probably part of your spiritual beliefs that yeah. we are connected to each other. We are all divine. Yeah. So when I refuse to help someone I see in need, I'm actually not helping myself. I am actually not loving myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, with self-hatred. A lot of this that I see, um, has to do with just not loving and giving ourselves compassion. And then mm-hmm. we don't show it to others. And I, I think back to what I said at the very beginning, when I was thinking about the messages that I got, um, in an evangelical church, there was no emphasis on the love your neighbor as yourself, meaning right. love self and neighbor. The way I love myself impacts the way I love neighbor. There was no emphasis on that part. It's very clear that the two are are intertwined. Yeah. So what does it mean to love ourselves and one another? Because we are connected. And yeah. I just I don't think that we talk enough about that either. Um, so I, a bit of a rant for me too. So we're <laughs> we're yeah. on the same page. But the lack of compassion that's that is a pandemic. Lack yeah. of compassion, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I must say, left, right, in between, and center, the one thing I really feel that joins all Americans together in a sort of a hell is placing, um, you know, getting ahead, quote, unquote, and, and material um, conquest. People say they don't, but we do, and and I just think it's a killer, because to me, the environment in which anybody would want to have a family anyway would be one in which uh, beauty, art, music, truth, love, compassion, sharing has nothing to do with gender, non-binary, straight, trans. It has to do with only one thing as far as I'm concerned, and that is how do you define the word success? Mm -hmm. And if success defined in the American context is all about position and prestige, career, and money. The values that actually make people happy, according to every single study that's going on, which is relationships, connection, friendships, the closeness to other people, empathy, compassion. We all pay lip service to that stuff. It's not mirrored in the legislation. No. It's not mirrored in the values. It's not mirrored in corporate America. And it's in that hammer and anvil beating people's brains out. It's in that context that I find your book so valuable because we're saying, look, in the individual instance of a woman having an abortion, hold everything a minute. We've designed a whole culture that basically says that a woman that goes ahead and has a child in this culture has made an incredibly brave choice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we're we're criticizing the woman who has the abortion when we've designed a culture that basically tells every woman you're insane if you ever bear a child, because look at what we've created for you to bear this child into. We're not community oriented. We're not going to help you. We won't lift a finger for you. Good yeah. luck storming the castle. I don't know what you think about. Yeah, that.
1: I mean, I can't refute that, even as someone who, you know, myself has been pregnant and and is a parent who you know, probably has had the best in terms of access to healthcare. Um, I did not have any paid leave after my daughter was born. It's one of my biggest regrets. Um, mm. Never had that time to recover, you know, and and then, you know, struggled to afford childcare. And then during the pandemic, I think all of that, even those of us who were managed to hold it together, yeah. just barely, all of that came crashing down. And these are things that people who are in poverty, who are, who are black or indigenous or, you know, immigrants have been dealing with, you know, sure. far longer. But I think as someone who it then became my experience, right? Like I, I saw just how fragile hmm. it had been, even for someone like me who had support, who had access, who had the right skin color, who had the right education, the right job. It still wasn't enough even for me. So what are we saying for people who don't have access to all of that? Uh, yeah. How is that valuing life? It absolutely is not, to your point earlier.
0: Hmm. Well, guess what? We're at that place now where oh, I'm went opening fast. the book up one more time and saying a complicated choice, Katie Zay and um, in bookstores everywhere. Is that accurate? Out yeah, there? you should be
1: able to get it. You should be able to get it anywhere. Anywhere Available. books are sold. It's available yeah, where books are in sold. All <laughs>
0: I'm always leery about saying that because I get enough advanced copies. It's like, no, it's not coming out until March. But yeah, no, this it would... came
1: out in February um, well, of last see, year. So there you are. So, yeah. you know, it's out. That's right. And I it. hope
0: you read it. But um, Katie, thank you for the time. Thank you, Frank. Good luck with the book and stay in touch with me and stay in touch with us. And uh, if if this conversation has been helpful, Please let people know about it once our good producer, Ernie, posts it, because um, I would imagine anybody following you will be interested in hearing you talk in this context. I think we've had a good conversation.
1: Yes, I've really enjoyed it. So lovely talking to you. And thank you for being so candid about your own background. Um, I really appreciate that, uh, that you're willing to talk about it in the way that you did. I definitely learned some things today. So thank you for the opportunity to, to share with you today.
0: Good, Katie, and all the best. Take care.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of
0: the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.